Francis Chan wrote a book about nine years ago, which I had never heard of until recently, called Forgotten God. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And in that book, he said, if I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. Writing back in 1660, Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin stated in his massive work on the Holy Spirit, there is a general omission in the saints of God, and they're not giving the Holy Spirit that glory that is due to his person and for his great work of salvation in us, in so much that we have in our hearts almost forgotten entirely this third person of the Trinity. I sent out in the teaching teaser this week that for many of you like myself who maybe did not grow up in a charismatic church, it seems that we spent so much energy trying to differentiate ourselves from what we perceived to be ultra-charismaticism that seemed inauthentic and many times contrived, that we went all the way to the other side of the pendulum of just ignoring and neglecting the Holy Spirit, which is equally horrible. And so it's true that many of us maybe have grown up with an ignorance as to who the Holy Spirit is and his work in our lives. Uh, Commenting on this, Calvinist theologian Arthur Pink, in terms of that Thomas Goodwin quote, he said, if that could be said in the midst of the balmy days of the Puritans, what language would be required to set forth the awful spiritual ignorance and impotency of this benighted 20th century. And of course, now we're in the 21st century. But if that could be said way back in the days of the Puritans, that even back then they were ignoring the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives, what what language would it take to describe where we are today? Sort of a mind-bender. The question has been posed If it's true that the Spirit of God lives inside of us, indwells us as believers, and that our bodies are His temples, shouldn't there be a huge difference between those of us who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't? You would think there there should be a huge difference. But if you look at the average life of a Christian as compared to the life of somebody who doesn't know God... Oftentimes there's not a huge difference. And I don't say this to guilt us or shame us. It's just a reality. And why is that? Why is that? We need to find a middle ground, I believe, between somewhere between ultra-charismaticism and, and, uh, and benign neglect. I talked about human entitlement this week, and I think... I I didn't say human entitlement with respect to not being expectant and hopeful in our prayers, but if we ever get to the place where we have this name it and claim it theology where I say something and God is obligated to fulfill all my desires and prayers because I've said it with the right words or I believe it or claim it, that's just not it. But I do believe that we pray and we believe until the day that we die, as I said before, but We have to find that middle ground. And the truth is that many of those in the early church knew a whole lot less about the Holy Spirit than you and I do today. Think about that. 
The early church, intellectually at least, knew far less about the Holy Spirit than the average Christian today. And yet they experienced the intimacy and the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives so much more than most of us today. That seems odd. How could we know so much more about the Spirit and yet have such less of an experience of the Spirit? A.W. Tozer submits this as a reason. He says, we have imitated the world. We've sought popular favor. We've manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord. And we've ended up producing a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in many cases that's true. We're not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit on a daily, consistent basis to the degree that I would believe that God wants us to experience that. 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke the words of John 16:7 to his disciples. He said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When Jesus spoke those words to his disciples, I'm not sure they were really excited about that. Think about that. They've had Jesus, God in human flesh, going around with them for three years, eating with them, uh, recreation, you know, this and that, and discussions, and, and just doing life together. And now all of a sudden he's saying, I'm going to leave, but there's going to be a replacement, a spirit. And they're thinking, I would take a tangible Jesus over a spirit replacement any day. So I'm not sure that they really understood that and were all that excited about that. And the truth is, I think many of us today feel the same way. We would opt for a physical Jesus in our lives over an invisible spirit any day of the week. God seems intangible enough, invisible enough, as we seek Him and as we really need Him to show up in our life. And honestly, the thought of a spirit of the Holy Ghost, as we often call Him, it even seems less engaging and less appealing. If anything, we want something more tangible, not something more ethereal. And so I think we struggle to wrap our minds around this concept of the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does. But Jesus promised us in John chapters 14 to 17 that it would be better if He went away and if He sent the Holy Spirit. So I want to dive into our passage today in John chapter 14 and discover as much as we can about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does, how He works in our life. There's an outline provided for you in the bulletin, and you can take notes on that. And you can also use our new mobile app um, and follow along with that, just digitally on your phone. So two different options. I'm reading John 14, verses 15 to 31, and I'll read from the New American Standard Version. This is what John says to us, the words of Jesus. Verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not know him or see him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Understand at this point the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, so the Holy Spirit rested upon people for the purpose of ministry or for the purpose of a title or an office. 
But the timeline was that, of course, Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, he rose again. It was 40 days after his resurrection until he ascended back to the Father. And it was 50 days, so 10 days after his ascension, that the Holy Spirit came. And Scripture says in the book of Acts, I believe that the disciples were meeting in the upper room and going about their tradition and their custom as they did with Jesus. And as they were praying, the Holy Spirit came down and, and danced like flames of fire over their heads as they spoke. And, and they spoke in different languages and many signs and wonders occurred that accompanied that. But at this point, the Holy Spirit had not yet come. So Jesus says, he abides with you in verse 17 and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. After a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. Judas, who not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus doesn't really answer him, but he repeats what he's just said. And he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And understand there that as Christians, we don't believe the Holy Spirit gives us new truth. We believe that he reminds us of the truth that God has already given to us, that God's word is complete and full. There's no need to add to it. But the Spirit reminds us of what Jesus says, brings it to our remembrance. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let them be fearful. You heard that I said I go away, and I will come to you. And if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And understand at this point, too, this is Jesus speaking in his humanity. Jesus was God in human flesh, and yet he modeled for us in his humanity the dependence upon the Father. Obviously, as, as God himself, Jesus is not less than the Father, but he's modeling that dependent relationship. Verse 29, Now I have told you all of this before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Let us get up now and go from this place. The night before Jesus hung on the cross, Thursday night, Monday, Thursday, Jesus for the first time teaches his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned the Holy Spirit. He's alluded to the Spirit in different forms and different ways. But this is the first extended teaching that Jesus does with his disciples because he's, he's going to be going away. And he wants them to understand the role and the work of the Helper that he 
has promised them will come. And this is the first detail that we learn from our passage, and it's point number one in your outline. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That, that word helper in the Greek translates in English as comforter, as counselor, as advocate, or representative. Maybe some of your literal translations even have the word paraclete, which is the exact transliteration of the Greek. But this word simply means one who is called alongside, or one who is called in. And the reason why someone was called alongside or called in is what gives this word all of its meaning and distinctiveness. The, Greek, the Greeks use this word in a variety of different ways. A parakletos might be a person called to give witness in a law court in someone's favor or defense. A parakletos might be an advocate called in to plead the case of someone who is under a charge that would result in a serious penalty. It might be an expert called in to give advice in some difficult situation. And, and in Greek literature, it was even used of a person called in when a company of soldiers felt depressed and discouraged in order to fill their hearts and their minds with new courage and with new strength. Whatever the case, the word translated as helper in our text was always someone who was called in to help us in our time of trouble, in our time of need. And the Holy Spirit, as we read passages of Scripture, particularly like Romans 8, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with, with groanings too deep for words, Scripture says. And He pleads our case before the Father. And it's not this picture of an angry, grouchy, old Father God who needs to have His ear bent by the Holy Spirit. But since the Spirit is God and the Father is God, the Father wants to assist us and help us as much as the Spirit or as much as Jesus, they are all teaming together on our behalf and desiring to give us good things. Jesus said throughout the Gospels, if you as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit to those who love Him? Well, the Holy Spirit encourages us and fills us with strength and with courage. The origin of that, that word comfort comes from the Latin, and it actually means bravery or courage. It means to fortify with strength. John Wycliffe was the first one in the, in the 14th century to use the word comfort in his Bible translation. Instead of the word helper, he put the word comfort because back in his day, the word comfort meant to fortify, to strengthen, to, to make courageous. But today, that word comfort in our English language almost exclusively means to console somebody, to kind of come alongside and go, oh, they're there, it's okay. But that's not the meaning of, of the Latin, of the original, or of the Greek. It's to fortify and strengthen and to make brave and to su supply with courage. And that's what he tried to convey. The Holy Spirit, our helper, is always with us and will never leave us. Think about all of the different roles of the Holy Spirit that we know of from Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live godly lives. People have said, and very rightly so, that 
God never calls us to do something that the Holy Spirit won't empower us to do. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to resist temptation and always provides a way of escape that we may be able to stand up strong under that temptation. The Holy Spirit, as we've just read here, is the one that helps us to remember and to recall God's Word and all that He's taught us. The Holy Spirit is the one who allows us to stand strong in the midst of spiritual warfare. The Holy Spirit is the one that allows us to love others and empowers us to love others as God loves, not selfishly as we, as we love, always wanting something in return, but unconditionally, and not looking upon a person as to whether or not they're worthy of our love, but loving just because that's our nature as new creations in God. The Holy Spirit is the one who allows us and, and helps us to forgive others who have wronged us, to experience God's peace that surpasses all understanding. And one of my favorites is the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, Scripture says you and I actually have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Remember back when I took the SATs in high school, I was praying for the mind of Christ <laughs> to get into that good college, you know. But I could go on and on recounting all of the roles and purposes of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But you get the picture. And when Jesus says that he will send another helper, that word another in the Greek means another that is just like the first. Jesus was the first messenger and helper that God sent the Messiah. And and now Jesus is promising that another just like me will come. Which makes sense because the Spirit is God, Jesus is God, they're of one essence. But it's not another of a different sort or kind, but another that is exactly like Jesus. And so Jesus is saying that this other member of the Godhead of the Holy Trinity will come in his place and will never leave them, but always indwell them and empower them for God's purposes. Well, secondly, God promises that he will come to his disciples and us by extension through the Holy Spirit. Point number two, God continually comes to us through the Holy Spirit. God continually comes to us through the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And when Jesus uses that word orphans in the original language, it means I will not leave you fatherless. I will not leave you fatherless. But it also was used of disciples and students bereft of the presence and of the teaching of their beloved master. When their rabbi or their teacher would die and leave them, they felt fatherless. They felt like they had no further purpose in life. Plato says that when Socrates died, his disciples thought that they would have to spend the rest of their lives forlorn as children bereft of a father. And they didn't know what to do about it. And so Jesus, as the rabbi of his disciples, is saying, I'm not going to leave you fatherless. I'm not going to leave you without God's presence indwelling you and guiding you and empowering you and helping you. We have an eternal Father who will never leave us or forsake us. And we experience that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the Greek, in the original language of which the New Testament was written, verse 18 is not future tense, but it's present. It reads like this, not I will come to you, but rather I am coming to you. Jesus doesn't promise I will come to you, but rather he says I am coming to you. 
And we know after three days he rose and he came back to them. But he's also promising that throughout generations until he ultimately returns at the second coming, that he will continually come to believers, to you and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit. As I was preparing this week, it it, it occurred to me, and it's been a thought that I've been reflecting on for some time now, that I don't know that I've ever read or heard of a single testimony of a non-Christian who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Dave Blackburn mentioned Paul on the road to Damascus, and yes, that's true, but I'm talking about not after he ascended, but while he was on earth for those 40 days, I don't know that I've ever read or heard of a testimony of a single non-Christian who who witnesses. You know, I would have thought that if it was me, if I were Christ, I would have gone back to Pontius Pilate or or to, you know, one of the people that accused me and said, what are you you thinking now? You know, like I would have really loved to mess with their minds, appear to them at night, you know, and just kind of, I'm here I am alive and well, you know, but it seems that Jesus only appeared to the disciples, to Mary Magdalene, to Peter, to John, to James, to to the 12 and to 500 at one time. And he had this ability to be a physical presence or a spirit that could walk through walls. You know, they're meeting in the upper room and he all of a sudden just appears and they're thinking, how did that happen? The doors are locked, the windows are shut and all of a sudden he's in the room. Kind of freaky. But you get this idea that he appeared to believers and believers only for 40 days before he ascended and that the world at large really never saw him ascended. I mean, resurrected. Can't prove that, but that seems to be the message of Scripture. And so that's why he says... You know, in verse 19, after a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. And one of the ways that he promises that we will see him is through the Holy Spirit. One of the most powerful and tangible ways that Jesus and God comes to us today, I I believe, is through his word. God continually comes to us through his word. His word is living and active. And it speaks to every situation in our life to every need that we have and we often want to know the will of God and the simple will is just obedience to the word he's already proclaimed there's nothing new there's nothing fancy there's no shortcuts it's Eugene Peterson the author of the message translation of the Bible wrote a great book called a long obedience in the same direction it's just continuing along that path of obedience that's the will of God And Jesus promises that he will disclose himself to us. Verse 21, he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. I will reveal myself through my word, through the Holy Spirit. Every day, every moment, I will cause you to know more and more about me and that knowledge will turn into a deeper, more intimate experience of me. The world doesn't know God because they've rejected his messenger. They failed to see God in the person of Jesus Christ. And John chapter 1 talks about that. John writes in John 1, 10 to 13, He came into the very world that he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, but even they rejected him. But to all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. To all those who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. 
God reveals himself. God discloses himself to the one who loves him, to the one who receives him, to the one who has a relationship with him through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. I like what one person this week I read said. It says, we can only see what we're fitted to see, or we can only see what we're trained to see. An astronomer will see far more of the sky than the ordinary person. A botanist will see far more in a flower than someone who doesn't know anything about botany. Someone who knows about art will see far more in a picture than someone who is untrained. Someone who understands music will get far more out of a symphony than someone who doesn't understand music. We see what we're fitted and trained to see. And I would submit that faith and belief is the vehicle that God uses to help us to see the supernatural. To see the, another realm that is, is, is beyond us. God uses faith and belief through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to allow us to see His work. But what we see and experience always depends upon what we bring to a situation or an experience. And a person who has eliminated God's existence from the equation is not going to be looking for him and not going to be listening for him. And that that describes the world. The world goes on like there is no God. Scripture says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And so they don't look for him, they don't listen for him. And sadly, many of us as Christians don't look for him or listen for him as well. We just think that's not going to happen. Instead of in faith, and in trust, believing that He will speak to us through His Word, through a vision, through impressing something upon our mind and our heart that just won't leave us, and that syncs with His Word so we know it's not out there, but it's, it's truthful. We see what we're trained to see, what we're fitted to see. And this leads perfectly to the last point, point number three. It's simply a charge. Keep your eyes open. And live obediently. Keep your eyes open and live obediently. Let me read the beginning of verse 19 and 21, highlighting certain parts. Jesus said, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who I will disclose myself to. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who I will disclose myself to. Sounds very much like a works theology. Like if I'm good enough, God's going to appear to me. He's going to reveal himself to me. I'm going to see him or hear him. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. For John, love is the basis of everything. God loves Jesus. Jesus loves God. God loves us. Jesus loves us. We love God through Jesus, and we love each other with God's love. And so we're all connected together through the bond of love. But for John, there's only one true test of love, and that's obedience. We can say that we love God all day long, but if we say that we love Him when we don't keep His commandments, there's a disconnect. James talked about this repeatedly in our last study. He said, prove yourselves to be... Doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And you know, there's a, there's a tendency for us when we know an intellectual truth, when we hear that truth, to think, oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, that's true. And somehow we deceive ourselves to think that because I know that that's true, 
That's the same thing as me doing that or living that. And those are two completely different things. We hear truth all the time in church. And it doesn't mean that we're applying it and living it. It just means that we affirm it as truth. And we need to know the difference. And we need to take steps to go beyond the acknowledgement to the application of truth. And that's what Jesus is saying. The one who loves me not only has my commandments, but keeps them. And for John, that test of love is obedience. It was by his obedience that Jesus showed his love of God. And it's by our obedience that we show our love for God. Jesus promised in verse 21 that he would reveal himself and disclose himself to those who keep his commandments. Kind of an epiphany that I've been reflecting on for some time now is, could it be that we've been looking at this from the the totally wrong angle? As I said, I grew up with a mentality that if I'm ever good enough or holy enough or righteous enough, maybe I'll see God or maybe I'll hear from God. And I think that's obviously a, a wrong way of looking at righteousness and holiness. The truth is, the more I sin, the harder it is to see God. Sin is the issue. It's not about being good enough or righteous enough or worthy enough. We are all those things through Jesus. But the practical consequence of sin is that it clouds my view of God. It's like having a dirty windshield when you're driving. You've got to clean it off or you can't see where you're going. And it's really hard to see God. It's really hard to hear God and experience God when we lead sinful lives. I love the simplicity with which Henry Blackaby expresses this in his book, Experiencing the Spirit. Listen to some simple things he says about sin. First of all, he says, sin makes us unrighteous and separates us from God. That's true for non-believers. It separates us from a holy God. It's true even for believers because it separates us from fellowship with God. Point number two, sin keeps us from understanding God. Sin keeps us from seeking God. Sin causes us to turn to and to look to other things for fulfillment and satisfaction. And finally, sin causes us to lose our fear of God. And when we lose this, there's no deterrent to our sin. We just spiral out of control in our sinful behavior. And honestly, I think that's where a lot of us are living. You know? We know that we're saved by grace not by works, lest anyone should boast. And so we almost feel like, you know, it really doesn't matter what I do. But it it matters very much what we do. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You know? He goes with us, whatever we do, whatever we engage in. And that you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Every sin has a consequence, and one of the consequences of sin is that it blinds us to seeing God. It keeps us from understanding God. It keeps us from hearing God. And so the challenge and the motivation for living holy, godly lives is not to be good enough or righteous enough or worthy enough, but it's to experience God more, to connect with Him. I I love the title of our series, Frequency. Because it not only kind of communicates trying to dial in the right frequency where we hear God, but it also speaks of kind of a repetitious, consistent behavior of seeking God. Not just kind of a a once a week thing at church, but consistently in our lives seeking God. 
And I think that this is what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.8, when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Not blessed are the pure in heart, for they will be good enough to see God and know God, but blessed are the pure in heart, for they will actually see God at work, because they won't have all this other baggage and junk that clouds their vision. I want to draw some application today, and then we'll be done. As I look around the world today, it's evident to me, and I think it's probably evident to all of us, that the Spirit of God is most active in places where people are desperate for Him. The Spirit of God is most active and alive in regions of the world where people are absolutely desperate for Him. And I think it's sad that many times in America, we're just complacent. We're just, we're satisfied. We have so much to preoccupy us and keep us busy and distract us that oftentimes we're not desperate for God or humbled before Him. We're distracted by pursuits of the world as we chase after money and as we chase after things that we think will fill our needs. I know from my own personal experience that every encounter that I have of God only causes me to hunger and thirst for Him more. Every time I feel God talking to me, and thankfully it's on a regular basis because I have to go to Him every week for sermons, you know, and as I've told you guys, I never preached the same sermon twice in 30 years. Every week I go for fresh manna. Every week I go to God's Word for what He wants for us this week, not what He had for us yesterday or five years ago. But this, and so that is a, a practice that causes me to have to listen to God. And every time I feel like I hear from God or see God at work, it, just, it, it creates an appetite for more. And that's the beauty of pursuing God through the Holy Spirit, this, this righteous appetite that He fills and, and causes even a hunger for more. But when it comes right down to it, I, I don't think any of us want to be led by the Holy Spirit because ultimately all of us want to lead ourselves. That's what we struggle with. We struggle with following anybody else than ourselves. And so it's hard to follow a spirit that we hardly know and can't see. But it's imperative in Scripture that we surrender, that we give up control. And the reality is, is that we never were in control in the first place. We're deluded if we think we ever were. I understand that we have free choice. I understand that we can make sinful choices all day long. But my point is, you and I cannot control our destiny. Only God controls destinies. And God works despite sin, despite all sorts of chaos in the world, to accomplish His will and His purposes, while not violating free will. And that's a hard thing to do. That's why He's God. But maybe a simple place for us to begin is, one of the thoughts that came to me this week is, when's the last time you prayed to the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you opened your prayer with not dear Father or dear Jesus, but Holy Spirit? And it sounds ridiculous, but he is part of the Godhead. He's the forgotten God. It's kind of like as a, as a kid always addressing your mom or your dad, but ignoring the other one, you know? And maybe, maybe it's just acknowledging simply in our prayers this week that his presence, his deity, his role in our lives. After communion, we're going to sing a song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here.
come flood this place and fill the atmosphere? What if we prayed that prayer not just in church, but at home? What if we prayed that prayer at work? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill this atmosphere. Be thick. Be be evident. Be visible. Point is, what if we understood that the Spirit works not just in church, but in every corner of our life throughout the week? And what if we lived that way? I'm, I'm remembering the Easter verse that we shared two years ago, Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's the power that you and I have and that we're going to be talking about and discovering in the weeks to follow. Let's pray.